The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John, the 15th chapter. What a precious privilege to own a copy of God's Word and to be able to turn in your own Bible to see these divine, inscripturated, frozen forever in a book truths. So this is the Word of the living God. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 12. Follow along as I read. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. We began this passage last week and got only up to verse 16, and we're going to summarize where we've been and then jump into this really important section in John 15, verses 16 and 17. Soon after my conversion in high school, I, I was confronted with a thought that really short-circuited my, my embryonic theological wiring. I couldn't believe what this man was telling me. It was a man who was instrumental in me coming to the Lord. It was a man who began discipling me, the first I had ever um, encountered uh, someone who actually spent time with me, a spiritual friendship, motivating me and moving me along in the faith. He is my wrestling coach, Lynn Goss. I will forever be thankful for my coach, Lynn Goss. Having grown up in a church that was very much against a certain theological persuasion, I was quite surprised when I was talking with Coach Goss one night after wrestling practice, and he asked me, because he knew of my recently uh, um, found faith in Christ, he asked me, Rick, what do you think about the doctrine of predestination and of election? Having learned well from the church I grew up in, I had a very simple answer. Well, I don't believe that. Then he said, well, what do you do with these verses? And we went over to his gym bag and brought out a Bible, and began to read verse after verse, after verse after verse, after paragraph after chapter, after verse after verse after verse. And so what do you do with this? I was pretty disturbed that day, very disturbed. Certainly was not what I'd heard growing up in my church. It was certainly the exact opposite that I'd heard growing up in my church. I had heard about these so-called Calvinazis, these Calvinists. In the end, though, I went and wrote all those verses down, and I could not deny that the Bible said what it said about predestination and about election. So I asked my pastor, I set up a meeting with him, and I said, what do I do with these verses? This is my first meeting with my pastor after my salvation. So what do I do with this? His response was amazing and still rattles around in my mind today. I can remember it just like it was yesterday. Some key phrases in what he told me. He said, Rick, the only way to get around the doctrine of election and predestination in the Bible is to make sure you have the right definitions of what these terms mean. And then he proceeded to tell me a way of interpreting the Bible that literally went like this. The Bible cannot mean what we do not think it should mean. It was remarkable. He started with the premise that God would not be like this, this, and this. Man would have this power, this power, and this power. Therefore, that verse can't mean what it meant. And if it was one verse, it would have been pretty simple to maybe maybe conclude that with the analogy of faith comparing Scripture with Scripture. 
But when we began comparing Scripture with Scripture, I got more and more confused. And it set me on a very deep and serious study on my own, as much as a 16, 17-year-old can do, on this doctrine of election. I settled it eventually with what I came to believe. But this doctrine is still a very difficult doctrine. It is a hard pill to swallow. We have to confess, though, the Bible teaches this. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We'll look at that more carefully in a second. When Charles Spurgeon preached on the subject September 2nd, 1855, and he was introducing this subject one of the first times to his congregation, this is what he said. We must not stand on the Bible to preach, but we must preach with the Bible above our heads. After all we have preached, we are well aware that the mountain of truth is higher than our eyes can discern. Clouds and darkness are around its summit, and we cannot discern its topmost pinnacle. Yet we will try to preach it as well as we can, end quote. Well, if it was a tough thing for Spurgeon to preach, I don't know what this little ant standing on a railroad track looking at a big locomotive coming down the track can do, but we'll do this best that we can today to just say what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and what? No more than what the Bible says. I'm not going to pretend this is an easy topic. I cannot pretend it is an easy doctrine. However, the last thing we ever want to do from this pulpit, which has been faithful for so many decades, is come to a verse that's hard and skip it. We're going to face it with some head on. As all of you know by now, Jonathan Edwards is my historical hero. I, I love his passion for God. I love his passion for glory. I love his, his evangelistic heart. I love the, the, the witnessing that he did all throughout the Connecticut River Valley. I love his, his heart for not only the glory of God and the things of God pertaining to predestination and election, but his passion to see lost souls come to Christ. I love his discipline. Well, Jonathan Edwards is definitely known as one of the great Calvinistic theologians of all the time, one who taught and purported uh, predestination and election, God's choice of those who had come to know him before the world began. But what I find very interesting is a section that he wrote when he gave a, an account of his conversion. And it's called a personal narrative. It was, it was something he wrote later in his ministry. He said, I want you to know what happened to me when I was converted. Now, here's what's very interesting to me. This strong proponent of the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, election and predestination. This very thing was a bone in his throat as he began to wrestle with theology. I'll put this up so you can read. This is from his personal narrative. This is what Jonathan Edwards, the great Calvinistic theologian, said. From my childhood, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That means that God elects and God predestines. In choosing whom he would, he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and to be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Can I just tell you, I can agree with that when I first upon this doctrine. He goes on, but I remember the, very, the time very well when it, I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. But I never could give an answer, uh, an account how or, or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at that time nor long after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. Let me stop right there. He basically says, I studied, I thought, I thought, I studied, and eventually it made sense, but I can't tell you why it made sense. He goes on. However, my mind rested in it. And it put an end to all those cavils and objections, those problems I had with it. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. So that I 
scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it. In the most absolute sense, in God's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will harden. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as any of the things, as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. I love this. At least it's so at times. In other words, every now and then, this is a problem. But I have often, since that first conviction, had quite another kind of sense of, of God's sovereignty that I had then. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly present, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember that sort of, uh, of that sort of inward sweet delight in, and, in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading the words, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, and was as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I would have ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. How happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up into heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying as we were singing over and over the words of Scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to with a sort of new affection. From that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension, new ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly encouraged to spend my time in reading and meditating, here's the key, on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lo lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. A few things that stand out to me about that. Number one, do uh, th this doctrine bothered Jonathan Edwards. And he studied and studied, but it was Scripture and the reading of Scripture that eventually led him to the firm conviction that I believe it. It was Augustine who said, when you come to difficult Scriptures, the principle to use is, I believe, therefore I understand. Unfortunately, we come and say, I want to understand so that I will what? Believe. It doesn't work like that. Every student of the Bible, of every generation has come up against the raging river of God's election and sovereignty and predestination theologically. It's too swift to cross. It's too deep to dig under. It is certainly too long to go around. And eventually you just have to step back and watch the roaring rapids and enjoy its beauty and say, what a God. Well, today we come to the doctrine of God's choosing in the middle of Jesus' discussion about love. Remember the context here. He's walking from the upper room, probably on the slope uh, down toward uh, the uh, Kidron Valley, getting ready to go over, have his time of prayer in Gethsemane, and be arrested. This is his last lap of instruction with his disciples. And one of the most interesting themes that the Lord continues to cycle back through is their need to love one another. It's very interesting. He He'll talk about the world, and we'll get there in our next study. But eventually, I mean, initially, his main concern was, men, if you don't love one another, the world isn't going to care about whether you love them or whether I love them. What good is it if you invite them into a body of believers who don't get along? You must love one another. In fact, he said earlier in the chapter, or back in chapter 14, they will know you love me by what? That you love one another. He doesn't even say that if, if you love... Uh, them, or if you love God. He says, the distinguishing characteristic of a body who's been redeemed by Christ, 
saved by his blood, for God's glory is that you love and care for one another. So we dove into this, and we looked at, we're looking at the extent of this Christian love, the intimacy of this Christian love, and the origin of this Christian love. We looked at the extent and intimacy last week. Let me just briefly highlight those for you. The extent of Christian love is in verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another. I mean, of all the commandments Jesus could have given, think about that one. This is it. This is my commandment. This is the one I want to put my signature on for you to live in the rest of your days. Then he puts the qualifier, just as I have loved you. And the question is, well, in what way did you love us? And he tells us by illustration, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. They didn't fully understand that at this time because his death was a few hours away. But they would look back. John for sure would inscripturate this and make sure that we made the connection between the cross and what's going on here. And as we noted last week, God's love even goes beyond this, right? Romans 5 says, when we were enemies, helpless, wicked, God died for the ungodly in Christ. He demonstrated his own love and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So he died for us as sinners... And he dies for us as friends, double secure, double important. What does that look like? Well, you can uh, look that up in 1 Corinthians 13. We looked at that briefly last week. Uh, The the kind of love that that transcends selfishness and really seeks the good of the other and the betterment of the people around you at the expense of self. It's selfless. Then we look, secondly, at the intimacy of Christian love, verses 14 and 15. He says, you are my friends, and then there's a big word, if. You're my friends if, conditional clause, you do what I command you. Here we come back to the lordship of Christ. Those who truly are his obey him in progression, though never in perfection. That's called heaven, right? There's a progress that we have. Sanctification is a progression. Justification happened once. Glorification will happen once. But in the middle is sanctification. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He's basically saying, you know I came from God. Wait till we get to chapter 17 when he says, Lord... Father, I I long for you to restore to me the glory that existed with you before the world began. Who, Who prays like that? Only God in flesh can pray like that. He says, I am God. I am God in the flesh. I am the master. You rightly call me Lord. But I'm going to add a dimension to our relationship. Not only am I only Lord. He didn't cease being Lord. He didn't cease being master, but I'm also going to call you friends. What distinguishes a friend? It's not the the master-slave relationship where the master knows everything and just kind of um, uh, precociously tells the the, the slaves anything he wants. He doesn't have to tell them what they're going to do, where they're going to go. He says, no, I've told you what the fathers told me. I have been faithful to let you in on what I know specifically about me and about salvation. I've made that known to you. This is a friendship with Christ. What a blessed reality. Deep, relational, true friendship. All based on that obedience. So, where does this kind of love come from? And we spent all last week on just those two. Now we're going to direct our attention to the third. Number three, the origin of Christian love. The origin How can we love like this? Remember, in verse 17, at the end of this section, he's going to say again, this I command you, that you love one another. That's the bookends. The command to love, the command to love, at the first and the last of this section. But right before that, in verse 16, he throws this little tidbit in. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, it's very interesting Just because the disciples were friends does not mean that they were on equal footing with the Savior. He says, I want to make sure you know we're friends, but this was because of my choice, my effectual call. In the case of the friends that you and I have, there's a a mutual choosing. It would be odd, even arrogant, for you to say to one of your friends, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's not the way we speak of friendship. The friendship Jesus has just affirmed in verse 15 was entirely initiated by him. 
A friendship with, this G- with Jesus is then thus one-sided. It's rooted in his love first. We love because he first loved us, John will tell, tell us in 1 John. This was not only the case for these 11 men, but the same for you and me. Now, let's go ahead and ask the question. Some have objected to this understanding, saying that, that, that this was only Jesus talking about choosing his disciples. Really? Turn back to John chapter 1 for a minute. Let's, let's test that. Is Jesus only talking about choosing these 11 men, minus Judas, as his disciples? Unfortunately, that doesn't bear the, the, the case of the historicity in John's own gospel of the disciples. Look at John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of them who heard John speak, was, followed him, was Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, found his First, his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. You see what's happening here? Jesus did. He'll see Nathaniel a little later and say, I saw you by the tree. The, these men came to Jesus first. So to say that when Jesus says, I chose you, you did not choose me, doesn't bear historicity. They chose Jesus before, at least in this, this, uh, this relationship they had on this earth, before Jesus came and said, I want uh, you, you, you. He wasn't picking flag football teams. They came and said, we want to follow you. Now, obviously what was going on in the divine scheme was Christ was drawing them to himself, even drawing Judas to himself. So when we look at this, this text, back to, back to John 15, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. He's talking about in an eternal, salvific sense. Because some of these guys did choose to be Jesus' friend before they'd ever had a conversation with him. Jesus is talking something about something much larger here. This verse is saturated with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We come in this verse to the doctrine of predestination and of election. But before I comment further, let me, let me say that the, the fact that God's, God calls some, which implies he does not call others, is not only a fact in Scripture, but it's also and equally a mystery. So you can take a deep breath. If you think I'm going to settle all of your questions today, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If I could, I would write a book and make a lot of money. There's no way I think we can solve all that because God intends for it to be a mystery because his ways are not our ways. They're larger than us. They're higher than us. The one who believes in Christ and is saved can only give praise and credit to God for saving him. Yet, the one who is not saved and ends up in hell can only blame himself. And make no mistake about the nature of justification. The one who is saved will also be in the process of sanctification. That's what he says here. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll love one another. You'll see what I see, say what I say, and obey what I've commanded. You'll be my representatives. One of the most pronounced places that this shows up is in the category of loving other believers. He talks about, I want you to bear fruit and fruit that remains. Well, the fruit is obviously his obedience in general, but specifically it's talking about bearing fruit through loving one another. That will be the, the fruit that, that the tree that is your life is known by. Paul affirmed this, by the way. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 4. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind, listen to this, the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of our God and Father, knowing our brethren by God, his choice of you. So loving others as the fruit of his choice of you are linked together in Paul's mind to the Thessalonians. He goes on in 2 Thessalonians, verses 
Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and in faith and truth. It was for this he called you through the gospel, that you would gain the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, if God's called you, if he's elected you, you will respond in salvation. And the proof of that salvation shows up first and foremost in that you love other believers. It's another way of saying that this place, this body, these people are, are the most precious in our sphere, in our circles of acquaintances in our life. Listen, we need, we need the doctrine of God's call and election. Here's the deal. If it were left up to us, no one, no one would choose God. You say, prove that, Rick. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Listen to this. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God, period. Is there any way to argue with that? No one seeks God. We are born from our birth with a stiff arm in God's face, and the only thing that breaks that callous, recalcitrant heart and that stiff arm is the grace of God and the purpose of God and the sovereign election of God because of predestination and his care for us. All of us have turned aside together. They have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one, he says. You say, well, that's the New Testament. Well, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more number, more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, that was Abraham, the Lord brought you up by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the king of Pharaoh. Here's what he's saying. Israel eventually said, why us and why not the nations? The answer to that goes all the way back to Abram. Abram, who became Abraham, was an idol-worshiping pagan who God looked at and said, I'm going to choose you and put my seal on you, give you faith in me that I'm going to grant to you as righteousness and bless the whole world through the Jewish nation because of you. You say, why did he choose Abraham? Why did he choose Israel? Why did he choose the Jews? Only one reason, because he loved them. Now you have to say, why did he love them? Good question. He answers that in Exodus chapter 33. In verse 19 and God said, this is, remember when Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock and, and he's seeing that vision of Jesus, uh, excuse me, well, it was the second person of the Trinity, by the way, but that um, picture of God passing by. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You want more explanation there, but he doesn't give it. I'm going to be gracious to the one I choose to be gracious to and compassionate on the one I choose to be compassionate to. Now, for a moment, take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 9. We're trying to move through this at least quickly and intelligently, but this, this could be a, a year-long study, frankly. Because this, this, this election of us, God's sovereignty with us, and God's sovereignty with choosing Israel became the, the, the similar corresponding argument for, for Paul in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But just follow along and let me, let me read. We'll see where we stop in verse 9, chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. This is so remarkable. 
He's speaking in hyperbole here. He says, I, would, I want my brethren to be saved so bad, I come close to actually giving up my own salvation for them. To whom belongs adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, giving of the law and temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. He was a Jew. Who is over all, God bless forever, amen. But... It's not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, now he's saying, hang on. God elected Israel. And by the way, he did elect Israel, and he will restore Israel one day in a thousand-year reign with the church at his side. He made a promise to Israel. He will complete that promise. The people are saying, well, what about this election of Israel? I mean, has God failed because he's turned to the Gentiles? For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And in other words, he's saying, just because you're a Jew doesn't make you saved. It's still by faith, by grace. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, as those who have faith, not just who are Jewish in their ethnicity. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins one by one man, her father, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Do you see what he's saying here? Esau and Isaac, God chose on their respective paths before they were born, even though their choices were real in their life and corresponded to God's choice. And it was said of her, the older will serve the younger, as we remember in the story. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And at this point, you can just hear the reader's blood boiling. What? That's not what? Fair. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God? Is there? In other words, is this fair? Is this unfair of God? May it never be. Verse 15. Now we come to our passage linked back in Exodus chapter 33. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy to who? The one I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom? The one I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has, here it is, mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power to you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on who? On whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. You'll say then, why? Why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? If God does that, how can he hold us responsible? Right question, isn't it? Oh, on the contrary, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Then he goes on and connects that back to Israel's election. Bottom line is what he's saying is this. I I choose whom I choose because I love who I love. It gets more graphic even in Ephesians, by the way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predetermined, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he do this? Because he's kind to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, let's push pause. I know what you're thinking. I, it, I think the same thing. Okay, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just that God would choose some and not another. It doesn't seem like the character of God that I know throughout the rest of the scripture. How in the world can I make sense of this? And even when Paul says, you may not make sense of this. You, who are you, O oh man, to speak to God like this? There's still this bone in our throat. It's hard to swallow. How can we make sense of this? Well, a few years ago, I was introduced to a little booklet by Mark Webb, a theology instructor. In this booklet, it's called What Difference Does It Make? He tells of an interaction he had teaching this subject with a woman who had an objection that you and I would have as well. And I want to tell you, his answer has served my soul so comfortably over the years. Let me put it up so you can read along. He writes, After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, This is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. Webb goes on. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but no, not you. And, and you, but no, not you, etc." The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and, and, and stops this one and, and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election, listen, election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe that it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, does it not? If you perish in hell, blame yourself. As it is eternally, entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God. For that is entirely his work. To him alone belongs all praise and glory. For salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Isn't that helpful? I feel like I'm, I'm, dr I'm drowning you in quotes this morning, but can I give you one more? I'll just read this one for you. I was reading a Puritan a few years back, Horatius Bonner, who very insightful, because I kept wondering, why does this bother me so much? Why, why is this so disturbing? I understand Romans 9, how can you say the creator? But then when I start kind of psychoanalyzing myself. What is, what is the problem with this? Bonner nails it when he says this. If I admit that God's will regulates the great movements of the universe, I must admit 
that it equally regulates the small. In other words, if it does the solar system, it does my will as well. It must do this, for the great depend on the small. The minutest movement of my will is regulated by the will of God. And in this I rejoice. Woe to me if it be not so. If I shrink from so unlimited control and guidance, it is plain that I dislike the idea of being wholly at the disposal of God. I am wishing to be in part at my own disposal. I am ambitious of regulating the lesser movements of my will while I give up the greater to his control. And thus it comes out that I wish to be a God to myself. I do not like the thought of God having all his absolute sovereignty are the very men who profess to rejoice in the love of God, who speak that of that love as if there were nothing else in the, in the world but and nothing else in God but love. The more I understand of the character of God as revealed in Scripture, the more I shall see that He must be sovereign, and the more shall I rejoice from my inmost heart that He is so. Nice quotes. But can I just really quickly show you something that should convince all of us to take a deep breath and not be so frustrated by this? John chapter 6. I love John chapter 6 because everyone is screaming at the top of their conscience, but what about man's choice? Doesn't he have free will? And by the way, that term is never used in the Bible. The only thing it says about our will is Romans 6. We are slaves to sin. That's the only thing it says about our will. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking he walks on the water. He, he then speaks to the people in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Who wouldn't want a Messiah who could heal the sick and, and give you all they wanted to eat? Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Tell you what, Jesus says, answers them and says, This is the work of God that you do what? What's the word? You believe in him whom he has sent. He doesn't say, Make sure you're elect. See if God chose you. He says, Believe. Look on down in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me, we can come to him will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. We can believe in him. Invited to believe, invited to come. Verse 37, yet all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now we find out anyone can come, but only those who come are the ones that the Father has given me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing. Raise up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and does what? And believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone, doesn't say the elect or the chosen, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It gets really intense here. It's crescendoing, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Is that clear enough? It is the Spirit who gives life. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 64, but, if, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Is, can, I, can he say it any clearer? Now watch this. Just so you don't feel alone, Verse 66, 
as a result of this, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They got it. And some of the people said, I don't want that kind of theological scheme. I don't want, nor am I interested in that kind of God. But Jesus is so clear. Election, sovereignty, predestination is there. It's true. But believe. Believe. It didn't confuse Jesus. He didn't say, okay, do you know the secret elect handshake? Do you have the predestination tattoo on your forehead? He said, no. Believe. Believe, believe, believe. Those are not contradictory concepts in the mind of Jesus Christ. Only those the Father gives will believe, but I call you to believe. Now, all that's just an illustration for one more passage. Thank you for your patience. 1 John chapter 4. We have to do this. Because this is the point of the whole passage and the doctrine of election, that we love one another. Because John pulls it all together when he theologizes about it in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. I love this. You you can sing the song if you want to. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love who? One another. Who's the one? The one who does not love does not love. Know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that he, we might live through him. And in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be, be the, the payment, the propitiation for our sins. Do you see that? We didn't love God first. We didn't love God. He loved us first. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first, what? Loved us. But if someone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, here's the indictment. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Say, where did you get all of that, John? And this commandment we have heard from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is where John unpacks what Jesus taught him in John chapter 15. Here's the problem. We can be easily deceived into thinking that we are spiritual, spiritually mature, based on the wrong criteria. Oh, our sound doctrine is sound. Our, our voluminous biblical knowledge is voluminous. Our accurate critiques of false teaching are accurate. We're even pride and proud of our wonderful church. And I, I love our church. But Paul says that with even the best of these things, if we do not have love, we are no better than a loud gong and a noisy cymbal. Make a lot of noise, but not making any music. By the way, look down at verse, back to John 15. Down at verse 19 for a moment. We're going to come back to this, because Jesus does. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I did what? I chose you out of the world, 
Because of this, the world hates you. Now we begin to identify God's choice brings us into a loving relationship with one another and will send us into enmity with the world. The point is simple. All believers are chosen out of the world with purposeful expectation to bear fruit, first and foremost, through loving each other. And our love for one another is an extension of Christ's love for us. How can we know if we're a friend of Jesus? It's real simple. Have we been chosen out of the world, and do we do what Jesus wants us to do, namely love one another? Now, here's the best part. In the gospel and in the epistles, in the book of Acts, there is no evangelistic opportunity where election is brought up. Instead, the call and the command is simply to believe. Do you believe? Will you believe? Why will you not believe? I've known people who their whole life have wrestled with, am I, am I elect or not? The right question is, do I believe or not? Will you believe? This is a good day because you've come on a day that there'll be people in the pews in our brand new finished prayer room, by the way, to my right, and you're welcome to look at that, who would love to talk to you about giving your life to Christ, believing that he is God. He is man And because of God's rightful wrath and our wicked sin, Jesus Christ appeased God and gave us grace and proved that he was who he said he was by rising from the dead. You can believe today and be converted. There's no secret handshake of the mysterious guild of the elect. Just believe. You say, Rick! That sounds contradictory. Let me close by saying, Charles Spurgeon, great Calvinist, amazing evangelist, said this, I believe like a Calvinist, and I preach like an Arminian. In other words, (laughs) believe. Father, give us grace to understand because we believe. Don't let us slip into the trap of thinking we must believe everything We must understand everything to believe, rather. Cause us to believe, and therefore understanding will flow. I I am so humbled that you would pick off the likes of me running toward hell. We sang it today. As I ran my hell-bound race indifferent to the cross, took the cost, you chose to rescue. Oh, Lord, protect us from the pride that looks to you and says, how can you be fair? And help us to scratch our heads in wonder, just as the angels look at our grace and say, how can God save sinners? Bring those to the cross who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.